welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast, a podcast incorporating narratives about facing and navigating adversity, a mixture of people, their experiences and professional psychological discussion. I'm Dr. Tara Quintarillo. I'm a qualified and regulated psychologist with over 20 years experience of mental health, disability and human behaviour. I want to share people's stories of navigating adversity in the hope that through being heard, a dose of compassion and some understanding, we can help others in the face of adversity too. Hi and welcome to the Adversity Psychologist podcast. I'm Dr. Tara Quinchirillo and today I have a guest from across the Atlantic, really honoured to have Brooke Ellison with me today. I'm going to let her introduce herself and tell us a little bit about who she is and what's brought her on the podcast today. Hi Brooke. Oh, hello, Tara. It's such a great pleasure to be here with you today. Tell us a little bit about who you are, because I'm sure most people will recognize your name. I know I did when you first reached out. <laughs> oh, thank you. Thank you. So I'm speaking to you here from my home on Long Island again. again I apologize. I'm a little, a little sick. A I little know. Bit, yeah. Uh, it's pollen season, home. isn't it? We were just discussing exactly. this. Exactly. Exactly. So I apologize if I sound a little bit hoarse or congested. That That is exactly why. Um, but I grew up here on Long Island in New York, short, a little bit uh, east of New York City. And uh, my childhood was very emblematic of many other children's childhoods. You know, I was go to school during the day and then you know, my days were kind of defined by the activities I was involved in thereafter, whether it was dancing or uh, Little League baseball or soccer yes. or uh, singing my church choir. So my life was very rich and very full and really defined by those uh, extracurricular things. Um, I was walking home for my first day of seventh grade, and in order to do that, I had to cross a major highway here on Long Island, and I was hit by a car. And that accident it was devastating. Obviously, I cracked my skull open. Uh, I bit down on a third of my tongue. I bit off a third of my tongue when I hit the pavement. Um, I had damage done to all of my my arms and legs and uh, you know, all of my uh, appendages. And when emergency response arrived at the scene of my accident, they uh, I was in cardiac and respiratory arrest. It was highly unlikely that I was going to survive my accident. Uh, Fortunately, a lot of the fears that had been surrounding uh, my accident, um, that I would likely not survive, and if I were to survive, I would likely be uh, significantly cognitively impaired. Uh, They did not come to pass, uh, thankfully. Um, I was in a coma for 36 hours, and during that time, I was obviously this... this, um, existential limbo that my family and I were all in, not knowing how, you know, what our lives were going to look like and, and what was going to come around the corner. But I uh, ultimately awoke from the coma that I was in. Um, I made eye contact with my parents, and it was clear that I was uh, able to recognize their faces. And uh, right. I, I, I wasn't able to talk at the time, but I mouthed to them that I didn't want to be left back from school i would that was i knew that my situation my life had changed dramatically but i, I was very very concerned about in staying with my friends and being able to return to school yes. and knowing that that um my education was going to be a central part of my life moving forward 
So I was in the hospital for a total of nine months, so six and a half weeks or six weeks in pediatric intensive care, and then seven and a half yes. months in rehabilitation. And I learned in rehabilitation, you know, what it meant to live with a disability to so kind of to accommodate my life to disability. Um, the ongoing injury yes. that I that I've lived with is a spinal cord injury, very high up in my spinal cord. So it's the second and third cervical vertebrae, so that has left me paralyzed from my neck down and dependent on a ventilator to breathe. So I utilize a wheelchair to move around, and I learned to drive a wheelchair when I was in rehabilitation. Learned to advocate for myself, and kind of learned to accommodate disability into my life. But I did. It took me a lot longer to understand. Yes what it meant to actually be disabled, right? So kind of integrating disabled disability into my identity, right? Which I think are two very different things. So I, I was in the hospital for a total of nine months. So from September of 1990 until May of 1991. And you know, um, when I returned home, I was just very steadfast in focusing my time, my time yes. and my attention on my education and all the time that I spent doing other things I now directed towards my education. And um, I went through junior high school and high school and then ultimately to Harvard where I did my undergraduate yes. really and master's yeah. degrees, uh, my undergraduate degree in cognitive neuroscience and my, master my master's degree in uh, public policy at the Harvard Kennedy School and um, kind of got involved in politics a bit, some nonprofit work a bit. Yeah. Um, and now I'm a professor at Stony Brook University, and I focus on medical ethics. So some of the questions that were um, revolving around my life at the time of my accident and disability and health policies and kind of running the gamut of many different uh, health-related issues as, as they relate to society. Yes, I was reading that about you, yes. yes. <laughs> so, literally, we could probably do a whole series <laughs> on this couldn't we um one of the things that's really struck me is that really poignant thing you said around there's learning to cope physically with a disability you know learning to to navigate everyday life but you talked about identity and that's something that really interests me you know how you've been able to oh, kind absolutely. of work on it is that something you're comfortable talking about <laughs> um because you do so so much you've written two books you've got a new book is it out yet or just coming out it's it's just came out yeah it just came out yeah called look both ways uh, one of the most important things I've ever done. <laughs> because you wrote a book about 20 years ago, didn't you? And then this is the, 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 the right. second book that you've written. Um, and for me, I was just really interested in what made you decide to write that second book. And, and are there elements sure. about identity in that? Is that related to what you've been through? Right. Excellent. Thank you. So the first book that I wrote, um, I was way back in, in, in uh, 2001, so shortly after I had graduated from college, right, graduated yeah. from Harvard in 2000, and at that time, my graduation generated a lot of notoriety, a lot of a lot of interest, actually, on an international scale. Um, so after that time, there was some interest in, in me uh, writing a book, and so at that point, I was about 10 years living with quadriplegia, yes. yeah. and even you know, in, in those 10 years, I learned a lot about 
myself and, and how one can continue to forge through life living with disability. Um, but the, my first book was largely kind of a, almost like a diary or a very kind of stereotypical um, memoir talking about the daily experiences that my life, my family and I had experienced during the tenth from the time of my accident until my graduation from uh, from Harvard. It was really a very important thing for me to do, kind of to be able to claim ownership over my narrative. Absolutely. And, and share a story that I think people really have gotten a yes. lot from. Uh, ever since then, though, I knew I wanted to write another book. I wasn't sure what that was going to look like or what it was going to entail, if it was going to be merely a um, continuation of daily lived experiences or if it was going to be something more than that. Um, around 2018 or so, right around my 40th birthday, I became very sick. Um, I was battling a, a pressure right. wound, which is, you know, highly detrimental yes. to the lives of people who live with uh, with quadriplegia or paralysis in any yes. way. It became very infected and I was you know, just very, very sick. Um, so it was treated several times. And then that summer, that following summer, I said to myself, um, your life is in a tenuous situation. Um, you, If you don't take the time to write what you want to write now, you might not ever have the opportunity to do yes. that again. Yeah. So that summer, I locked myself away in my bedroom and I said, um, write about all the things that you really care about. Uh, and in that process, I said, wait a second, many of the things that I thought had um, limited my life or affected my life or were aspects of my my life that I thought were negative or th sources of embarrassment, I need to completely uh, remove myself from. I need right. to, 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 to reconstruct how I understand disability as it is as it relates to my yes. life. But I can't talk about my life with disability without talking about the strengths that were deeply embedded in my life moving forward. I can't talk about um, navigating the world without realizing that it takes a tremendous resilience to navigate a world that's fundamentally not set up for you. That my life over the, the past you had been almost 30 years at yes. that point um, was so much a representation of creativity and problem solving and yeah, having to reconstruct yes. your day. Like, these are all tremendously valuable things. And, and it, these were um, aspects of myself that I only learned by virtue of living with a disability. And that this is something that I ought to be proud yes. of and not feel like it has made me a lesser individual. And like, that is where I think... Um, integrating disability into one's identity yes. really comes into play, right? Like that is the distinction between living with a disability and being disabled, yes. right? Understanding that, wait a second, but actually is very much the opposite. So that has been a tremendous growth for me. Um, and in these yeah, past few years, since I've written the both ways, like I have taken that knowledge and have run as much as I possibly can with it. I've tried to 
to kind of evangelize this message in as many different settings as I possibly can. What's really interesting then? So is this a right to ask? It sounds like there's been a bit of a journey for yourself in writing, but also it's sure. something that you then want to start to get out there because I've, I've read so many quotes from you about kind of deconstructing disability, but in terms of identity, <laughs> um, you know, our preconceptions. Um, you, there was one absolutely amazing quote I read, um, expect rough seas, not a smooth sail. Um, you know, life guarantees neither justice nor consistency. Um, we do ourselves no benefit by looking for or expecting either one. And that really stayed with me. That stayed with me over the last few weeks. And, you know, you've also said who is disabled and who is not. Right. Right. Exactly. Exactly. I think that we have also done ourselves a disservice by understanding disability to be a binary construct that we are belong to or don't or a category that we're either a part of or we are not. Um, I I have come to understand disability in an entirely different um, way than I ever did before. Like as a child, I I thought it was uh, the population that we should pity, right? Or um, you feel like are the weaker ones um, and are people who I don't have to um, associate with unless I want to. When I now understand disability to be entirely differently, uh, entirely different than we are all on some spectrum of yes. ability yes. to disability that changes over time, right? Where it's not it's not a consistent thing, um, and uh, it's not just a physical part of who we are, but you know, it's also. Um, a product of the policies that we enact and the technology that we innovate, the social services that we put into place that can either further disable or enable someone. And I think unless we understand disability in those terms, then we're missing the opportunity to actually make a positive difference in somebody's life. Is that things that you're, in terms of your kind of academic career, which has just been profound. But one of the things that I read up about you is that your interest in changing policy, you know, making kind of ground level changes, if that's the right description. Um, And is that something you're able to, obviously you've written your your newer book. Um, It's been a journey for you, but it's also about just helping people to, you know, think differently, deconstructing our very rigid narratives but I'm wondering whether, do you yeah. bring that into your academic work in terms of policy? Is that something that you have done? Very right. much so, very much so. Yeah, so I believe um, in the, the kind of the full translation yes. of work yes. that's done in academia, right? So not just being kind of in a lab or in an office talking yes. about you know, things that need to change, but actually bringing that full scale yes. to the, you know, the, the the point of actual translation and, and and policy change social change in whatever way i can i can make that happen so i do that through various ways so some of the the um the work that i'm involved in is community-based participatory research so i see getting people engaged in the work that i'm involved in like bringing that straight through to uh policy um advocacy right. and you know White, white paper development policy recommendations, right? All of these things that come out of the, the work that I do. And then also I serve on various boards and committees that help to do that kind of work also, whether it's you know, a human rights commission yes. or if I was form, formerly on the board of directors of the New York Civil Liberties Union. So talking about these issues in really all different circles, 
policymakers are just kind of one group. They're also, I mean, I, I believe that this level of societal change needs to happen in every different circle. So I give a lot of speeches and a lot of lectures you know, to people from all different backgrounds and at all levels yeah. of society who need to hear that, that disability inclusion is a really, really important part of um how the world needs to continue to evolve. So I, I, I talk about it in those circles yes. as well. I just actually um, helped to found a, a um, what's called a shared interest group from the through the Harvard Alumni right. Association on disability, which is the first of its kind. Gosh. And you know, the, the mission of this group is to talk about disability really in all different circles and all different um kind of sectors yes. of the world that have typically not really thought about disability as being a, a strong part of, of the work that they do. So yeah, I've been trying to spread this message as broadly as I possibly can. And that's also what we're trying to do today. <laughs> and in yeah. subsequent, whether someone's <laughs> listening to this, someone might be listening to this on their train journey to work in a couple of years time. Because <laughs> um, the other thing that I also read, and, and I thought this is really interesting. So I have a background. Um, when I first started working in NHS, I have a background in working with people with disabilities. So um, that's why I was so so honored when you reached out to, to come on my podcast. So I did. So I'm going to ask a tricky question. And I hope this is all right. So I'd read that you'd said, it would be easy to admire Brooke from afar, you know, keep our distance, you know. Many of us are uncomfortable around people we consider to be, quote, unfortunate. You know, we tend to simultaneously avoid and heroize the disabled and thankful that we don't have to deal with the day-to-day -day mechanics. And I, that, again, really struck me because I thought, actually, how many people do talk about, have empathy for, but how does that ever lead to a core shift so i'm thinking about the work that you do there's a difference between getting people to think about it and talk about it but how does that translate into doing right right yeah yeah i think that has been um the historical yes. problem when yes. it comes to disability yes. advocacy right it's easy to say oh this person is oh so much stronger than i could ever that's be, what i'm right? thinking about the little sound bites that you hear and see yes yeah exactly yes. oh that person is such an inspiration yes. right i hear that you know quite frequently and then you i, I understand the the well-intentioned good intentions behind that i understand what people think they're trying to do but i think that that far too often um, it makes people believe like they have acknowledged somebody's struggle and that that's all that yes. they need to do, yeah. right? Without saying, okay, what, what can I do to make a situation yeah. better, right? That's not just enough to say, oh, that person is inspiring. That person is, you know, is living a life that I don't know if I would have the capacity yeah. to live, which there's, there's some degree yeah. of uh, patronizing that's embedded in that but there really is the yeah time. yeah i think it's really important yeah. to have these yeah. conversations um because i think yes, sometimes oh, people think they can't even have that conversation you know is it okay to really exactly. deconstruct this stuff yes exactly exactly and, and to find one's own role to play in how society needs to change yes. right i think people yeah stop the conversation there by just saying oh this person is you know is is inspiring or this person is an inspiration or this person is doing something that that is difficult to do rather than saying okay well how can we make the world better right how can we make the 
work together to to build a world where it's it's less daunting to live with a disability, right? Where people don't have to feel like they have to battle a a um a you know a groundswell of difficulty every single day because the world is not set up for their needs, right? So, like, that is where I think the conversation doesn't go far enough. So when we think about the work that you're doing then, you know, informing policy, policy change, um, but also bringing it to the ground levels, there might be people listening to this, you know, whether they're in the States, whether they're in the UK or wherever. What could that look like, I wonder? There's probably no magic answer, but what could it begin to look like if someone's wondering, how do I take that next step from thinking about it, having conversations? What like, For you, what might that start to look like? Right, right. Well, we are increasingly um, incorporating things like diversity, equity, yes. and inclusion into our conversations, yes. right? This is that, uh, you know, this... Um, construct of DEI, right, diversity, equity, inclusion, social justice, or yes. uh, accessibility, right, kind of add additional letters as you yeah. go, um, and, and, and rightfully so, um, you know, they're being more deeply ingrained in our thinking yes. and how we, how we live our lives. Now, that needs to be inclusive of people with disabilities. I think, I think that very often that's not always the case, right? I think often um, we don't think about disability as an important um, you know, uh, population to include, right? Yeah. We've kind of lived in a, in a world in which it was almost taken as given that people with disabilities would be excluded and, and, and not given the same kinds of opportunities that other people that other people are afforded. I think that that really needs needs to change quite considerably, and, and that's not going to come from the work of people with disabilities themselves. Right? It takes allyship. It takes other yes. people shepherding that message. Um, even if you if you don't know of a specific person with a disability as far as you, to yeah. your knowledge, but making sure that disability is always in the conversation. Yes. The kinds of changes that we yeah. make to our workplaces are with disability in yeah. mind, just like they're with, you know, with other populations in mind as well. And everybody has the opportunity to do that, right? Everybody. They really do, um, yes. Yeah, has a circle of people, you know, with whom they associate and your disability should be a part of those conversations that we have with the people around us, right? It doesn't take any additional effort to say, wait a second, are we actually operating in a way that's going to be uh, accessible to everybody? Yes. And if not, what changes do we need to make? Who do we need to talk to to make that different? Yeah. Do you know what you just made me think then? So it all, I'm not sure if it's the right <laughs> metaphor, but sometimes people can be very reactive so if you have somebody in your workplace for example with a specific disability you might then look at what that individual needs but what I'm understanding from our conversation today then is that it shouldn't be just a reactive thing there should be a you know kind of almost inherent in how we run our businesses run our lives think about um day-to-day things have I got that right you know that kind of it's almost like you've got that exactly like a preventative kind of model almost in terms of we don't want to just wait (laughs) until there is someone and we are looking at their individual needs that needs to be considered but we need a bit more of a core shift by the sound of things then exactly right exactly right I think that's very often the case that people don't and I mean this is certainly the the case for me so I don't want to sound hypocritical in any way that you have more 
were it not for my direct experience with yes. disability, I don't know how, how deeply immersed that would well, be in yeah. these conversations. I think even having less, know, this, so. like this micro conversations within our bigger conversation, but that's the kind of thing people need to be talking about. How would I think about this exactly. if I wasn't, you know, experiencing this in my life or I knew X, Y, Z? That's the things. That's right. where it starts, doesn't it? Just these little micro conversations, you know, and being honest exactly about right. things. Exactly right. And you know, disability is one of these categories uh, in which anybody can find him or herself at any point in their lives, right? Like it is, it is, it is open for anybody at any point, right? So it's the, the earlier that we start thinking yeah. about these kinds of things, the better the world we can create. So that if somebody does experience disability, it's not completely terrifying, right? Yeah. I mean, when I have conversations with people, this is kind of a thought experiment that I do yes. with my students, with other people that, you know, if you were to find out today that you were going to be paralyzed tomorrow what would be some of the things that you would be afraid of and you know, it's very often things like well i wouldn't be able to do my job i wouldn't be able to have a relationship i wouldn't be able to to, to be involved in the activities that i'm involved in right now and all of these things are socially constructed yes. right it's, it's very it's not you know it's terrifying to live with disability, right? Like that is not what people fear. It's all these other things yes. that are that are perfectly within society's ability to try to fix for people yes. if they only did that and thought about it. Because yeah. I'm actually in this job, so I've been really privileged on this podcast to have two other guests, both with spinal injuries. One from Australia and somebody from America as well. Um, and actually, we forged kind of an online relationship. It's not just about a quick, you know. Oh, and I have learned such a lot. But I also then am privileged to see what they're doing with their lives, how they're using their narratives to yeah, create change. Sure. Um, and actually, do you know what's really interesting about today's conversation then is actually, I think I've learned an extra layer today, you know, about how to have some really quite raw and what we call in psychology difficult conversations, you know, people's yeah, fears. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And when you don't address fears, they just, they don't go anywhere, don't. right? They just, they just like linger and grow and they do. You become all consuming and like I'm very much a, a proponent of like planning things out, thinking things right. through. Like I feel so much better in an intimidating situation to kind of parse through what is what I'm actually yes. afraid yeah. of or concerned about, and trying to find ways to address yes. them. And like that, I think does everybody a tremendous service, right? If we thought about some of the fears associated with disability yeah. now. So that if somebody experiences a disability tomorrow, like these things are already accounted for, whether it's making the workplace as accessible yes. for people as possible, making sources of recreation as accessible yes. for people as yeah. possible, You're making sure that kids with disabilities can be fully integrated into the classroom. Absolutely. They're, they're not going to um, live in fear of living in a medical institution, yeah. right? All of these yeah. things are put into place so that you all of those fears, you're, you're not trying to deal with those on top of a tremendously life-altering situation to yeah. begin with. I'm just thinking there's almost a little exercise we could bring in there that for anyone listening to this podcast, <laughs> you know, in the early days or down the line, if they were to just take a moment, even just press pause on the podcast for a moment and just 
think that exercise is actually, I think, really powerful, isn't it? I don't think myself, actually, I can say. I've wondered, but I haven't purposefully sat and thought about that. And that's as a psychologist. That actually, what a difference we could make if we all, because sometimes what do we do? Quite a lot, actually, not just sometimes. When we're faced with difficult things, we don't want to lean into it. We want to lean back and, you know. Exactly, get me away from it. Because, you know, you've studied neuroscience, haven't you? (laughs) <laughs> brain goes no thanks we don't want this exactly. <laughs> we want to exactly. run and hide yeah, under exactly. the bed yeah, and not goes. ever think yeah. about it but actually if we could all just take a little you know when people are thinking what can i do right here right now just something small a small starting point then is that really powerful exercise isn't it sitting right. and thinking about yeah, that definitely. and and I think that's particularly yeah. the case for people who are in influential positions or yes that's a good point of power yes. You know, they should be thinking of these very same ways that they can modify their business practices or their policies um, accordingly. So anybody listening to this podcast now, and you know who you are then, if you're particularly (laughs) in a position of power influence, take some time now at the end of this podcast to just think. And I'm going to say as a psychologist as well, just notice what your reaction is, how, how easy or hard that is to do. Um, and starting to have those conversations, because I think we don't like to be judged negatively as human beings, do we? We're social animals. We want to be part of the herd. So how many people have these really difficult conversations then? How many people are honest enough to say, actually, I haven't thought about it more or I, I just can't manage to? Um, all I can do is perhaps hit like or share on something and say this person's inspirational. But what do we do to kind of tap into people to get that next step? You know, things that inform change, right. policy. We've all got that in us because you talk an awful lot. Actually, one of the things I was really interested in, you talk a lot about embracing the whole package. And I wrote down after that, feeling all the feels, everything that comes with that, you know, your identity, how yeah. you physically navigate life. Um, and you also talked a lot about kind of stigma and society and fear, which we've touched on already. And then the other thing that really struck me from your work is hope. You know, the science of hope. Is that something you're comfortable sure. talking about as well? Because like, oh your work is yeah, very hope based, is it? Oh, great. That's the thing that really yeah. jumped out, actually, from because I've read about you in different forums. I like to do the research on my guests and I like to look at different <laughs> forums as well to really get a sense sure. of somebody. And hope is the thing that really leapt out at me. And I just wonder you know, how much that's Thank part you. of your work. And because there's a science behind hope, isn't there? And how good that is for sure our well being. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's how I, I, I first became involved in it was when I was doing my undergraduate uh, honors thesis at, at, oh. at, at Harvard. And yeah, my, my um, work was in cognitive neuroscience. So I took a very kind of scientific, yes. uh, psychological approach to it. Yeah. And, I'm, and it has been a core structure and core component of who I am and, and how I have lived my life. And I didn't even know it at the time when I was yeah. initially studying yeah. it. Like I didn't understand how deeply embedded it, it has been in, in who I am. And you know, I, I, I view hope in a very particular lens, right? So I'm not just talking about things that we wish yeah. for or something that is you know, not easily quantifiable or amorphous like i, I don't really believe in yes. that in particular um i i understand yeah. hope to be very kind of driven by the challenges that we face the acknowledgement of of yeah. difficulty and saying okay 
this is going to affect my life in some way, but how can I continue to move forward with this? You're not, not, to, not necessarily despite this, but with this challenge as a part of who I am and how can I continue to set goals for myself and find a way to pursue those goals and who, what kind of resources do I need to tap into in order to make that achievement possible, whether that is, that is more uh, internally driven or based on the people who we have around us that can offer the supports that we need to get us through each day, right? Both of those things have been very important parts of, of my life for sure. And then when you do that, yeah. that becomes um, a skill set that you have honed. It becomes just part of who you are and how you navigate life. Right? Yes. That's not to say that your times yeah. don't you wouldn't you do. don't yeah. falter at certain points in your life. Like we've all experienced um, times of self doubt, yeah. irrespective of what kinds of challenges we have undergone in the past. But at the same time, right, it can become almost identity formulating where you can build your sense of who you are on this skill set of saying of of not being daunted by the challenges that we face and finding a way and uh, a path to forge through them and like that has been such a gift to me and it was that very same lesson and understanding that I used to when I ran for political office I said this is how I've lived my life what lessons can society adopt on a more collective basis that can help us through the challenges that the world is now experiencing some of these elements in your book so what i I will make sure that i put the links to everything in the show notes for this so that people are more likely to just click on something and then be able to get to it aren't they we know how human human brains (laughs) work um are some of these elements in the book because hope is something i really love to talk about and (laughs) <laughs> Absolutely. This is who, this is what I what I mentioned earlier that you know when I wrote this book I didn't just want to talk about details of my life or events in my life like I wanted to talk about these really important lessons. So the, the lesson of hope and of leadership kind of I understand leadership to be almost like an amplification of hope just on a yes. on a collective scale as opposed to an individual scale. Um, resilience. Uh, what is even what it's like to be the disabled yes. member of a family, right? All of these things, love, yeah, yes. a chapter yep. devoted to love, right? So all of these things are deeply embedded in the book, right? And chapters devoted to each one of these things because they, they are equal as much a part of who I am as as has been the events in my life. It's interesting you were saying there as well, actually. So when I think about some of the work I've done over the years, just what you need, but also that wider support system. And I think that's really important to think about, isn't it? Um, but I'm also thinking, sure. you know, autonomy is quite important there as well, isn't it? In terms of what you want, what you don't want, you know, how much you would like to do things versus having support from people where you're able to put boundaries in which i always think is really interesting yeah yeah no definitely and i I think that that that, um intersection or juxtaposition i guess i should say between personal autonomy and our collective uh interdependence i think is really an interesting one right especially here in the united states as i'm sure you know right we have a very kind of independent mindset right or um, ability to get where you need to go (laughs) based on 
Yeah, on on self-reliance, when I think that's not necessarily how anybody gets to where they are, you know, ultimately, where they ultimately find themselves. And I think people with disabilities are often kind of ridiculed or shunned because of the level of dependence that they have in their lives. And we're all really that way, right? We all have the need to be dependent and reliant on people around us to get where we need to go. And then at the same time... um, knowing that we have our own choices to make, right? And that we don't always um, want to be dependent on other people or that we all have the freedom to um, you know, to, to cra- craft our path forward and not to be defined by what other people tell us our lives are. That's a real like. nugget. Now, what I usually do, I always ask my guests, if there was one adversity takeaway, you've had loads already. <laughs> Is there one little nugget you could give us a little? That's my kind of signature move. I always show my age when I say that word. Signature move. What could you leave us with? A little adversity takeaway. Oh, my goodness. Well, I I would. So my life has been kind of shared in all parts of the world. And I hear from people from all different backgrounds uh, all the time who have... um, gained a sense of value for my life and when i hear from people they share their stories with me and their lives and many of them are um you know uh related to people family members or friends who have experienced just with disability Uh, but many many more actually are just people who are trying to get through life trying to get through the day who are experiencing internal doubt self-doubt yeah. some kind of internal struggle. And I understand disability to be just one um, sometimes very obvious example of the difficulties that we will all face in you know, in our lives. And I think when we face adversity, we tend to understand it as being completely isolating, completely marginalizing. We feel very alone. Like, how is the world yes. continuing to move forward when we're experiencing these challenges when it is actually kind of the one of the, the, the few universalities that yes. we all experience by virtue of being human beings, right? And I think that we need to understand that, understand that we, that we, that we in the course of our lives, will experience times of struggle, times of doubt, times when we are feel we feel like our lives are, have been yes. completely yeah. upended and there's no path forward. But we can kind of, you know, with the people around us, you just circumscribe those. Um, points of adversity to the least impactful role that they play with our in our lives and refocus our attention to the things that actually matter and the ways we can continue to move forward and then actually move forward in those areas you know, it can be done i've seen it done i have yes. seen life and some of its most difficult and most um bleakest and and darkest and have found a way to to forge ahead nonetheless. And I know that it can be done. I know that how deeply and how strongly the human spirit can be tested and strengthened by those tests. I'm just thinking, if anyone's sitting here now can can hear that, (laughs) who's going through a really difficult time. Again, there's hope there. There's hope in what you just said, isn't there? so your new book, Look Both Ways, where can we find that? 
Awesome. Look, my face is available on uh, Amazon okay. and on BarnesandNoble.com. Um, they can anybody can uh, stay connected with me through my website, uh, which is just BrookeEllison.com. Nice and easy. My book is available both on you know, hard in hardcover as well as on in, okay, uh, a Kindle version, and then working to get it uh, recorded for you know, to make it as as accessible as as possible. Um, and I'd love to. I'd love to be in contact with people who uh, have read my book and you know, who, because you know, it is a very yes. honest yeah. book. It's a very open book, and um, you know, I'd love for people to you know, to absolutely. offer their that connection. Also, that connection, absolutely. <laughs> exactly. So I will make exactly. sure in our show notes, but also in social media promotion, that we have all of those links and really encourage people to reach out and connect. <laughs> we need that. After everything we've been through, particularly in the last few years, we all need that connection, don't we? Brooke, I could literally, I could just talk to you all day. Thank you so much. It's my absolute, what a fantastic end to the week for me. I'm I'm very, very privileged in this job to be able to to, to just meet these incredible people. But the fact that we've also had just a really raw conversation at times as well, that's what I really wanted to get from today. Um, I want people to really think about this. I want people to go and do that exercise. <laughs> I want people, you know, oh, yeah, we want yeah, ground level so. change, yeah. don't we? Um, and, and we can exactly help with that. You know, just, yeah, I'm absolutely. Absolute pleasure to meet you. Uh, the pleasure is all mine, Tara. And thank you so much for the work that you do and for, for allowing me to share parts of my life with your listeners. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Adversity Psychologist podcast. It's so lovely to have you here. I'm Dr. Tara Quintrarillo and you can find me at drtara.co.uk. You'll see everything I'm up to, free resources, my media work and my new COVID recovery clinic as well. Remember to please rate and review my podcast. It really helps people to benefit from the narratives of overcoming adversity if they know where to find us. The Adversity Psychologist podcast, helping you step at a time.